Father, we thank you for a word, a word that is everlasting, fixed, eternal in the heavens. All man is like grass and all his glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. This word will outlive and outlive and outlive and outlive all the generations of men and will abide forever. This word in Jeremiah chapter 20 will abide forever. May it abide richly and dwell richly in us this morning as we think through it and pray on it and listen to it and allow it to saturate our souls and minds and hearts in such a way that we're shaped and fashioned by your word. And we pray that you would speak now, O God, for your servants are listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're doing a little two-part series here that we're wrapping up today. I don't even know if I could call it a series. It's more just a couple of sermons on a theme that I've titled Trouble and the Tenderness of God. And we're looking at a couple of different prophets. Last week we looked at Elijah, and this week we're going to look at Jeremiah and consider the trouble that they faced, what we can learn from it, and how they respond to that trouble. Because as I mentioned last week, uh, trouble as Job says in Job chapter 5, is inevitable. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job said that men who are of the earth are few of days and full of trouble. And Paul told us in Acts chapter 14 that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself, our Savior, reminded us that in this world we will have trouble, tribulation, trial, difficulty. So I think it's wise for us from time to time, especially several times a year, if this is the word of Job to us, if this is the word of Jesus and Paul to us, then we need to pause and make sure we're being equipped to face trouble. Trouble's coming. Some of you are right in the middle of it. You've probably heard it said before that we're either moving out of a trial, in the midst of a trial, or moving into a trial. And that's pretty much true about our lives. And so I want us to be equipped for such trials and troubles as they come into our lives. And I think this passage in Jeremiah 20 helps us to do that. Uh, A writer named Kathleen Norris first heard Jeremiah's words that we just read at St. John's Abbey in Minnesota. She was with the monks of St. John's for a year and a half. And during her stay, she discovered that an important part of her monastic life is the continuous reading of entire books of the Bible, section by section, section during morning and evening prayer. And upon encountering the words that we just read in Jeremiah chapter 20, she writes the following. The most remarkable experience of all was plunging into the prophet Jeremiah at morning prayer in late September one year and staying with him through mid-November. We began with chapter 1 and read straight through, listening to Jeremiah in one hell of a way to get your blood going in the morning. It puts caffeine to shame. She goes on to explain how Jeremiah's sufferings became the agonies of her own soul. She writes the following. Opening oneself to a prophet as anguished as Jeremiah is painful. On some mornings, I found it impossible The voice of Jeremiah is compelling, often on an overwhelmingly personal level. One morning, I was so worn out by the emotional roller coaster of chapter 20 that after prayers, I walked to my apartment and went back to bed. This passionate soliloquy, which begins with a bitter outburst 
on the nature of the prophet's calling moves quickly into denial. Jeremiah's anger at the way his enemies deride him rears up and also fear and sorrow. His statement of confidence in God seems forced under the circumstances, and a brief doxology feels more ironic than not, being followed by a bitter cry. The chapter concludes with an anguished question. End quote. So there's her journal entry on reading Jeremiah 20. And she's right. You know, if you read Jeremiah 20, you get plenty of reasons to dive back under the covers in the morning. It's the low point. Just as we looked at Elijah last week and his low point, well, chapter 20 is the low point of Jeremiah the prophet's ministry in which he does the same things that we're tempted to do when life seems to go against us. Blame God, reject his calling on your life, and curse the day you're born. So if you've ever felt that temptation, then you're in good company with God's prophets. This morning, we're going to consider this chapter where we find Jeremiah the prophet in trouble, real trouble. The night before, he had been put into prison, and the head of temple security and the chief of Israel's prophetic police had taken offense to Jeremiah's message of judgment against Jerusalem, which was his continual message. Repent, you're going to be judged, you're going to be exiled, you're going to Babylon, repent, repent, repent. Most people don't like to hear that. So, Jeremiah's seized, beaten, and put in jail. And the next day, the head of temple security named Pasher, or Pashur, has a change of heart and decides to release Jeremiah. So Jeremiah does what any self-respecting biblical prophet does when you're released from prison for being obedient to God. You tell words of divine judgment on the one who released you. And you say to him that your friends are going to die and that your lies are going to be exposed and your crimes are going to be repaid. While this is part of the story, it doesn't tell us what went through Jeremiah's mind while he was facing trouble. You ever thought about what he was thinking about during that long night in jail? Well, we don't have to wonder because those words are recorded for us in Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 18. He begins by lamenting everything that has happened to him in verses 7 through 10. And then his mood shifts and he begins to trust in God and worship him in verse 11 and verse 13. And then a surprise turn where Jeremiah pronounces a curse on himself and questions God. In the midst of all this, Jeremiah, I think, teaches us three valuable lessons about what to do when trouble comes. Here's the first one. When trouble comes, pour out your heart to God. Pour out your heart to God. This is what Jeremiah does. Notice what he says in verse 7. Oh, Lord, you've deceived me, and I was deceived. You're stronger than I, and you've prevailed. I've become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, Violence and destruction! For the word of the Lord has become to me a reproach and a derision all the day. If I say, I'll not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire 
shut up in my bones. I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering on every side, denounce him, let us denounce him. Say, all my close friends watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived, then we can overcome him and take our revenge on them. Who's he talking to? God. He's talking to God. Do you, do, is, this, is this in your category for ways to speaking, to God, speaking with God? This raw? Because if you never get this raw with God, do you have a real relationship with God? Or is it all just, just religion? Just doing the Christian thing? This is real relationship with God. This is what real relationship with God looks like. When you feel like God has deceived you, when you feel like God has set you up to fall and fail, when you feel like everywhere you're turning in obedience to him, you're just being mocked and derided and hit with trouble at every turn. And Jeremiah had many good reasons to be discouraged, didn't he? Priests are gathering against him in the corners of the temple. People were sick and tired of hearing his message of judgment. His so-called friends were waiting for him to take a false step so that they could jump on him. He'd been beaten and imprisoned, and he was being continually mocked. I mean, that's enough to be discouraged, isn't it? It's enough to dive back under the covers. Not a dull thing today, Jeremiah would say. Yet he cries out, O Lord! Is that, not, is that how he begins verse 7? O Lord! O Lord! God invites us to take our troubles straight to him. He says, bring them on. Bring them on. Tell them to me. This is what godly people do. They don't complain about God. They complain to God. That's what the godly do. The ungodly complain about God. The godly complain to God. You know, Jeremiah is not the only godly person that ever complained to God. Job did it on the ash heap when he was grieving the death of his family in Job 3. David did it in the cave when he was hiding from King Saul in Psalm 57. Jonah did it from the belly of the fish when he was trying to run from God in Jonah 2. And Jesus did it on the cross when he was suffering for our sins. Did you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a complaint against God? It is. It's a complaint. It's what Psalm 22.1 is. So when you're facing discouragement, don't complain about God. Take your complaints to God. Pour out your heart to Him. Go to Him in prayer and lay your troubles in front of Him. Do it with humility, but do it with honesty. God can handle it. Pour out your heart to God, number one. Number two, engage in worship of God. Engage in worship of God. Don't just complain. Worship. Worship. Isn't this what Jeremiah teaches us? Notice what he says. After his complaint in verses 7 through 10, he now begins to worship. Look at verse 11. But the Lord is with me. The Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. 
Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you have I committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. He worships. He worships God. He says truth about who God is. He says God is with me. He's a dread warrior. My persecutors will stumble. They will, God will take revenge on them. I will not be overcome. I will not be greatly shamed. They will not succeed. They will get dishonor. I, they will, their dishonor will never be forgotten. And he prays that he would see God's vengeance upon his own enemies. So in the midst of his complaint, he still offers praise to God. Even when we are alone, brothers and sisters, afraid, discouraged, disheartened, in trouble, we have reasons to sing. Many, many reasons to sing. Even in trouble, God deserves our praise. Now, his worship, look at this, has three elements to it. I want you to see, I want to do an anatomy of worship here in trouble. What, what sorts of things are present? There's one in verse 11, one in verse 12, one in verse 13. In verse 11, there's a confession of faith and trust in God, right? Jeremiah doesn't understand what's happening to him. See, sometimes we can make that kind of a condition for praise. Like, if I understand what's going on, then I'll praise God. No, you praise God whether you ever get an answer or not, because you have plenty of reasons to praise him. And he didn't understand what was happening to him, yet he believed that even though God seemed to be against him, that was not his faith reality. Even though it felt like God was making a mockery of him, he knew that that wasn't true. He wasn't trusting his own feelings and sense perception and his own version of reality. He was rather reminding himself of what Scripture says about God's people, that God was in fact with him despite feeling so very far away at the moment. He knew the Lord was strong, even though he felt powerless. So that's the first element of his worship, a confession of faith. A second element of his worship is a prayer for help. That's in verse 12. He says, let me see your vengeance upon them. Answer me. Do something. He doesn't take matters into his own hands when he's in trouble. He doesn't try to solve problems on his own. Instead, he commits his cause to God. And he prays that God would vindicate him and put his enemies to shame. That's his prayer for help. And then in verse 13 is his song of praise. Where he sings, he calls himself to sing to the Lord and praise the Lord. Why? For he's delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoers. And don't be fooled, that life of the needy right there is Jeremiah's own life. Those evildoers right there are those who are opposed to him in that moment. So it's always good to worship God, but it's especially necessary to worship God when we're in trouble. And that's the last thing you want to do, usually, if you're anything like me or God's people in the Bible. The last thing you want to do is sing to God when you're in the midst of heartache and trouble and discouragement and difficulty, right? You want to, you want to cave in on yourself. You want to think it through. You want to stew on it a little while. You want to try to fix it. But that's not what Jeremiah does, and that's not honoring to God in the least. What's honoring to God is when we sing our hearts out when our hearts are breaking. The best thing to do when you're discouraged and disheartened is worship. Worship. 
Have you ever turned on a hymn or worship song and sang through tears while your voice is cracking and you hardly believe what you're saying because you hurt so much? I have. Many, many, many of you have. Keep confessing, keep praying, keep singing, even when your heart is breaking. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Isaiah says. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Ever been there? Ever been in a place where you feel like you're walking in darkness and you have no light? What does Isaiah call you to do? Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. John Piper says about this verse, We may not be able to describe adequately what it means both to walk in darkness and trust in the Lord. They seem contradictory. And yet there it is. When the darkness of uncertainty and fear hangs over you, inasmuch as by grace it remains in you, don't let go of the one you knew in the light. Keep holding on, if only it may seem by your fingernails. Know this, his hands are on his children's fingernails, day and night, pray for dawn and deliverance. End quote. So when you only feel like you're hanging on by your fingernails, God is holding you by your fingernails. And even more so, he's under you, he's around you, he's beside you, he's over you. Don't let, one, don't let go of the one in the darkness that you knew in the light. The darkness will not last. It will pass. And the sun will come. So those are two lessons we learn up front. We learn to pour out our hearts to God, verses 7 through 10. And then we learn to engage in the worship of God in verses 11 through 13. And we could just stop right there. And that'd be enough to get us through trouble. This is what, this is what James calls us to do in James chapter 5. He says, is any one among you sorrowful, then let him, let him pray. And if anyone among you is joyful, let him sing praise. And Jeremiah would add to James' word, and even when you're sorrowful, sing praise too. So, Jeremiah 20, 7 through 10, we have pouring out his heart to God. And then in verses 11 through 13, we got him engaging in worship of God. But that's not the end. And now we meet the very interesting part of chapter 20. What in the world is going on with Jeremiah now? He just poured out his heart to God, and he just engaged in worship of God. Did you read verse 14? Read it again. Cursed be the day on which I was born, the day when my mother bore me. Let it not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought the news to my father. A son is born to you, making him very glad. Let that man be like the cities that the Lord overthrew without pity. Let him hear a cry in the morning and an alarm at noon, because he did not kill me in the womb. So my mother would have been my grave and her womb forever great. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? What's that? 
I mean, this is not how the Bible's supposed to go. Haven't you read any Christian books lately about our best life and how the Christian life is the victorious life? I mean, this would not be a bestseller. Lifeway's not signing Jeremiah. Crossway's not giving him a book deal. He's not getting invited to the conference circuit. He's not speaking at T4G. I mean, that's no way to encourage God's people. What are you talking about? They meet trouble. You, you, you talk about, yeah, pouring out charge of God. We got that. We pray. We're supposed to pray. It's what good Christians do. And we're supposed to sing. But what about cursing and wishing you were aborted? What do you do with that? I'll tell you what you do with that. I'll try. Make no promises here, but I'll try. Number three, lesson. Leave the last word with God. Leave the last word with God. Now, we've just read how Jeremiah follows his hymn of praise. And Jeremiah's mood just went from praising to cursing at a dizzying speed. I mean, verse 13 is a psalm of high praise, and verse 14 is a lament of utter despair. How do we make sense of that? Some don't. Do you know there are plenty of commentators, if you read, they're trying to get Jeremiah off the hook about this. Let me read a couple of them, okay? Some scholars conclude that, here's a quote, verse 14 can hardly belong after verse 13. And they view chapter 20 as a hodgepodge of Jeremiah's sayings. So in other words, it's not continuous, it's not a narrative, it's not what Jeremiah said right after another. It's rather a collection of kinds of things he said throughout his life. Well, that gets him off the hook for it, doesn't it? John Calvin said that this verse, quote, seems unworthy of a holy man to pass suddenly from thanksgiving to God into imprecations as though he had forgotten himself, end quote. Well, respectively, Mr. Calvin, I disagree. Celeste, you think I'm beholden to the great reformer in everything? I disagree. I'll give you why I, I disagree. These verses do belong together. They may not belong together logically, but who says the life of the soul is always logical? For a systematic theologian who has to fit everything into a neat category, maybe it's a struggle. But not for God's people. Not for people who've experienced soul trouble. Curse and praise commingle during nights of the soul. Job 10, verses 18 and 19. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me and were as though I had not been carried from the womb to the grave. So Jeremiah is not unique in this. Sometimes trouble and difficulty is so much that you can't even contemplate why God would even create you to live your life. Why would you spend so much time on the earth suffering so terribly when it seems it's one trial after another? A couple of commentators on this help us. Phil Riken, once pastor 
at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, now president of Wheaton College, says, quote, It's important for us to recognize the confusing, sometimes schizophrenic nature of the Christian life. We are at one and the same time saints and sinners. Although our sins are forgiven, we continue to sin. Furthermore, our lives contain a mixture of pain and pleasures. So one minute we praise and the next minute we curse. One day we rejoice in God's plans for us. And the very next day we resist his purposes. Derek Kidner, another commentator, observes, quote, The prophet's words are intended to bowl us over. Together with other tortured cries from him and his fellow sufferers, these raw wounds in Scripture remain, lest we forget the sharpness of the age-long struggle or the frailty of the finest overcomers. End quote. So what's the point? The point is not that Jeremiah was right in saying all that he said. He was not right. Jeremiah shouldn't have said verses 14 through 18. They're not true. They're not true. But nevertheless, he said them. And God, the Holy Spirit, inspired him to say them. And wanted them recorded in Jeremiah chapter 20 for our good. The chapter ends with Jeremiah in no condition whatsoever to answer his question that he just posed in verse 18. He's not in a condition to answer that. Jeremiah had known the suffering of persecution, the sorrow of watching his people reject God's word, the shame of public humiliation. All of these troubles placed a huge question mark for him over his existence. Although he's strong in faith, there were times, and this is one of them, where he has a lot more questions than answers. But Scripture provides the answer. So why did Jeremiah, let's answer Jeremiah's question for him, okay? Since he's not in the condition to answer it, there's no verse 19. He didn't answer his question. We're going to answer his question for him. Look at verse 18 again. Why did I come out from the womb, Jeremiah says, to see toil and sorrow and spend my days in shame? All right, that's what he feels. He feels like his days are all toil and sorrow and spent in shame, and no doubt there's some truth to that. But my question, Jeremiah, is why did you come out of the womb? If you're telling yourself, this is what you're telling yourself. You're telling yourself these sorts of things. What does God tell you the reason that you came out of the womb was? Well, let's, let's go read it. Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, I'd behold, I don't know how to speak, for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. 
declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to tear, break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see an almond branch. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. This is God's interpretation of Jeremiah's life. Jeremiah traced his troubles back to his mother's womb. But here's the problem. He didn't go back far enough. He didn't go back far enough. And that's our problem and our troubles. We don't take our problems nearly back far enough. While Jeremiah traces his troubles back to his mother's womb, God traces his purposes back before Jeremiah was even in his mother's womb. He had a purpose for Jeremiah's life before the beginning of time. Before he formed Jeremiah, he knew him, he had set him apart, he had appointed him to be a prophet, and Jeremiah needed to be reminded that God had chosen him for salvation from all eternity. And brothers and sisters, that's what we need too. In our troubles, we need to be reminded that God has set us apart, chosen us as his special people from all eternity. The doctrine of election is not for argument. It's to get you out of bed. It's to help sustain your faith when you don't feel like you have any. Election says... In a contra-conditional way, God chose me apart from anything I ever did before I was ever born to belong to Him. And isn't that glorious when everything's falling apart around you? Isn't that steadying? Isn't that an anchor for the soul? And that's what's true of us if we're God's people. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, We're chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. We're created in Christ Jesus According to Ephesians 2.10, for good works which he prepared in advance that we might walk in them. Our whole life is just like Jeremiah's life. Not in terms of the specific details and the calling, but in terms of the way in which God has worked in our lives too. We are set apart for salvation and for ministry. Even when our troubles place a giant fog over our purpose for our existence, we must give God the last word and not our circumstances. And that's what we learn from Jeremiah's negative example right here in chapter 20. He's not giving God the last word. He's trying to object to his own praise. He's saying, sing praise to God. Sing praise to God. Curse the day I was born. Curse the day I was born. No, give God the last word. Let it end at verse 13. Even if you have to import verses 14 to 18 back into your complaint. But let it in with, let God have the last word. Not my circumstances. Not my own self-analysis. Not my own conscience. God's word will have the last word. You know, most of our why questions about suffering are utterly and ultimately unanswerable. We are not told why Jeremiah suffered the way he did. God didn't tell him in chapter 1. He just said, hey, it's going to be hard, man. 
you're going to do some awesome things and you're going to have some tragic things. I've chosen you to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Sounds like chaos labor to me. Man, that's hard. That's hard. He's doing some significant stuff in the history of God's people with Israel here. So we don't, we're not told why. But God does not seem to be in the business of answering our why questions anyway. And most philosophical responses to the question of suffering amount to various forms of getting God off the hook for the problem of suffering when God doesn't want to be let off the hook. He wants to be on the hook. In fact, the greatest answer from God to the problem of human suffering is not to get him off the hook at all, but to impale himself on the hook of human suffering with us in the very midst of our suffering. That's what God does. Is that not what he did? God's response ultimately to our why questions about suffering is not a definitive answer in every specific case to every trouble we have, but look at the cross. Am I not willing to practice what I preach? Tim Keller says, if we ask the question, why does God allow suffering and evil to continue, and we look at the cross of Christ, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we know what the answer isn't. It can't be that he doesn't love us. So when you're in the midst of trouble, it certainly can't be because God doesn't love you. That's off the table for consideration because he already impaled himself on the cross for you to show you how much he loves you and his willingness to get down in the dirt with you in the midst of your suffering. So when trouble comes, and it will, and it creates a disorientation in our lives, which it does, we must orient them by pouring out our hearts to God, by reminding ourselves and engaging in the worship of God, and by leaving the last word to God, especially the last word, it is finished. Father, thank you so much for the time in your word this morning to consider trouble in the lives of your servants. Oh, how Jeremiah could speak now, if he could speak, and one day, All of us who are trusting in Christ in this room will meet him and interact with him and engage in the worship of yourself with him. And we thank you, God, for his testimony, which teaches us how to pour out our hearts to you, how to engage in worship of you, and how to leave the last word with you and not to our own voices or our own takes on our own circumstances. Help us to do that, God. When we meet trouble, Help us, and, and, and that trouble leads us to even question why we were ever placed in our mother's womb. May we trace that story back behind our mother's womb to your eternal purpose of love toward us, to save us and make us your own. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond in song.